0: Up here, the elves all went on strike, and Missus Claus ran off with the heat miser. Oh, what, what a terrible! It's the most terrible time of the year. Oh, well, who's that? Oh, somebody at my door. Oh, I hope it's not the Grinch. Cra- grabs door handle, creaking door sound effect. Why, it's my friends Ren and Inman. Hello, come in out, out of the cold. <laughs> Oh, would you look at that? Uh, uh, I have to go now, but here, uh, IO can can take over hosting <laughs> Santa emergencies. You get it? Hey guys, how's it going? I'm just here with Santa.
1: Cool. Hey Santa, how's it going? Oh, you know, you know it's okay. Gotta go.
2: Wait, Santa, before you leave, um, it's okay?
0: One time for one question. Then I gotta go.
2: Um, I just, I, I, I hope that, I hope that again this year you're delivering a timeless holiday classic into everyone's stockings. You know, that, that timeless Christmas classic tale of escape from Incel Island. The
0: timeless Christmas tale of escape from it. Yes. Well, only if you've been a good boy, girl or other then will you get a little treat in your stocking this year? Okay. Got, got to go. Oh, Rudolph's off off, to no good. (laughs) Got to go.
3: Yeah, wow. Good good Santa. Good, great job, Santa, getting the getting the word out there. Though like yeah, I mean hopefully hopefully we're going to get some royalties from that, but whatever. Anyway. Hey, hey y'all. How's it going? Good.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty 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 good.
3: Um so I've gathered you all here today on the podcast on on this most most merry of seasons cuz I want to talk about holiday movies, but we could have, we could, you know, maybe there will be time. We can talk about some other holiday movies if we want, like, um, you know, Lord of the Rings, a Christmas movie. Cause it's got elves in it. Uh, mm, the, mm-hmm. the, the thing Christmas movie, cause it's, it's snowy. Yeah. Um, die hard, die, not die a hard. Christmas movie, not a Christmas movie at all. It's got guns <laughs> in it. And I don't, I think the Christ child frowns v- on such things. No, I want to talk about my favorite Christmas movie. Um, And it's undoubtedly a Christmas movie because it has two Christmases in it. Uh, Double Christmases. I'm talking about The Green Knight. Um, And I wanted you all on here to talk about uh, Christmas, of course. The reason for the season, Christ, uh, as well. (laughs) Um, But just... um, Miss fantasy in general, um, and uh, this one I've got. I got a little cheat sheet because back before we knew what strangers was going to be, um, we thought maybe we'd we would have like written reviews for mm-hmm. movies or things like that, and um, I wrote a review for the Green Knight uh, some Christmases ago, so. For that blog we never started. For that blog we never started. I mean,
1: that, maybe there's still time.
3: There's still time. It seemed to kind of just spin off into this podcast. Mm-hmm. But like, Fair enough. You know, podcasts
1: are like cooler than blogs now anyway. So
3: Yeah, podcasts yeah. are the new blog.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. For sure.
3: Um, so rather than let this be shuffled off into the dustbin of history, I'm just going to read it. And then I want to get y'all's opinions and we can spin off wherever we want.
0: <clears throat> um,
3: when they asked me to write reviews for strangers, I knew I had to find something I enjoyed for the first one. It would be bad luck to start any enterprise talking lots of shit. No, I want to talk gold. So I'll talk about my favorite movie from 2021. I knew what I would eventually get to the Green Knight, but Christmas has non, not long since passed at the time of this writing. Should I wait till next Yule to make my case for its canonization as the new Christmas movie par excellence? Nay, because have you heard the good news? Time is fake and every day is Christmas. Christ is born. Hallelujah. Not to mention this is a movie for all seasons. It tells a classic tale. Man versus the same man versus nature. All size given agency. And as a bit of an anti-Civ wingnut with uh, animist tendencies who love swords, this movie speaks to me. This is more than a gorgeous wedge in the procession of fantasy junk food that has dominated TV and cinema for a grip. It's a coup against the moralizing point of fantasy through a retelling of a fable older than most countries. Europe was, until very recently, seen by the rest of the world as a backwater of religious nutcases, the stories it tells from that time period are a specter that haunts fantasy, not to mention sets a tone for the t- stories that we tell about Western civilization. Boo, boo, hiss, yes, boo. The tales of King Arthur describe a time when we just got on our triumphant creep towards a flattening of the magical world that still lived next door, and God was just about not on speaking terms with us anymore. Sure. Sure. But more importantly to this story are the romantic interpretations of the Arthurian myth and a bedrock of fantasy, the worthy ruler, the man who deserves power for he wields it justly, ordained by God to tame the land and guide a kingdom with honor and concern for all who crawl beneath him, a superhuman warrior who slew 960 Saxons in a single day. He was even gifted a sword, not a magic sword, just a very good sword. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, in its original telling, does not deviate from that formula too much. Stories about men who, while human, always act chivalrously and face a challenge. David Lowry's retelling tells a tale that I find leagues more interesting. The avengers of a dumb coward who sucks and wants to gain honor, whatever that means. Gawain, Dev Patel, a party boy and son of Morgan Le Fay, Sarita Koroy, and nephew to the king, Sean Harris. These are all in parentheses because I I wrote it. Just go with me, please. And always takes the easy path and is contented being a sexy little vessel for Id. His position is secure. Someday the chance for glory will just fall at his feet and he'll surely rise to meet it. But for now, it's party time. On Christmas Day, he wakes in his low-born sex worker girlfriend's bed and climbs the hill to take his station at a party at the king's court, where he's invited to sit at the king and queen's side. Contrasted against the heroes of the round table, he sees himself as very small, fully aware of his own lack of character among these legends, until the queen reminds him he is young and renown comes from a life lived. Arthur rises to give a speech and a holly jolly Christmas it is. Surely no forest spirits will arrive to harsh this mellow, you say? Not so fast. Absent the Christmas feast is Gowen's mother. No, she has gone off to perform the first of many splashy psychedelic set pieces that really sold me on this movie. A witch's summoning ritual in a crooked spooky tower. Morgan Le Fay and the many regurgitations of Arthurian legend throughout the years is seen to be antagonistic to Arthur for unknown reasons. Her reasoning here is just as mysterious. Does she seek to test her layabout son to arm the mischievous horned God and grinch up a celebration of Christ? Whatever her reasons, she summons an avatar of nature The green man, one as wild as she, yet knowing no measure. A spirit of the forest of which Arthur's kingdom of Britain will one day choke and flatten. The green knight busts his ass into King Arthur's court to play a friendly Christmas game. So Groot trots into the castle with a bow of holly in hand with a cheeky little game for the round table. Come hit him and win a magic axe. Um, but you got to agree that a year from now, you will travel into his domain and allow the bow blow to be returned, whether a cut on the check or a slice on the throat. Gowan wants to show all his gathered dads that he is also fit for legends. Yet, having only absorbed, as most young boys do, the spicy bits, he dives over the table and Arthur, admiring his moxie, lends him Excalibur, the non-magic yet still very good sword that he got out of a lake. And how does he repay dear old Uncle King? By beheading this prone dryad at dinner, who then rises and leaves with his own head in hand, cackling all the way. While Gowan receives applause from this room of bloodthirsty hogs, Daniel Hart's outstanding soundtrack throbs like blood in the ears in the rising moments of an anxiety attack to bring it on home that Gowan is fucked up about as bad as you could. Gowan spends another year... In the bliss of a mortgaged youth but christmas is coming up and what did uncle king get him a guilt trip he reminds Gawain of his bargain with the green knight and trumpets the call to adventure gowan enters the larger world with a magic belt encircling him enchanted by his mother to ensure he will not come to harm drawn towards the goal of honor not as a virtue to embody but a title to achieve As we progress, we see a very believable boy on an unbelievable adventure tripping over his dick at every turn. We watch him beset by battlefield looting urchins, Barry Keoghan, which is my favorite weird little guy in all of fan uh, movies, not just fantasy. Uh, We watch him attempt to bargain for a reward just for acting chivalrous with the patron saint of Unwanted Advances. We see him attempt and fumble working with rather than against nature and becoming the guest of a house of haunting eroticism to have his portrait taken by a camera obscura onto a sweating piece of lead by the same actor who plays his lowborn girlfriend, Essel. The same woman he denies failing an easy test of honor so he can get jerked off on his last stop before he is to face the green Knight, where he arrives completely faithless, sleepwalking towards his destiny and responsibility in the green chapel. It is man's turn to embrace the scythe confronted with all he's poised to inherit as a star player in the rise of England's empire. He rises in a way to meet it with honor to keep going would be like describing a dream or an acid trip, bewildering for all involved. And words are wasted on something to be seen. Luckily, a decent VPN has never been easier to find if you've not yet seen this movie. You should go see it. Uh, in, this, in this podcast, we're probably going to get into some spoilers, so hopefully you've seen it because the ending is incredible. Anyway, the costuming is bonkers, and I think it's cool that they gave Merlin face tattoos. Uh, Ralph Enison's Deep Earth Rumble play as he plays the Green Knight made me understand ASMR. And it's really refreshing to see a brown lead in a very Eurocentric fantasy story that is obsessed with colors without feeling this pull by the writers towards an insecure explanation or patting themselves on the back for the colorblind choice of it. It's, a, it's all solar crowns, round tables, pentacles, and the turning wheel of seasons, a journey through sensual vignettes festooned in the richest colors of rotten growth. It's the best Christmas movie, and you should watch it right now. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, Santa just came back in. <laughs> so, um, I so yeah, I, we've all watched this recently. Um, that's generally my take on it. What do you all think of the Green Knight?
1: I think it is an interesting movie that has interesting things to be said about it. I don't think I'm as enthusiastic about it as you are. I did enjoy watching it. I accidentally watched it twice in a month because I had watched it right before you asked me to come on the podcast just by chance. And then um, Inman and I rewatched it the other night. And yeah, I mean, I like it. I wouldn't say it's like one of my favorite movies of all time, but more importantly, there are conversations that can be had about it, which to me is the marker of a, of a good movie too. Right. Cause there's like so many movies where I watch it and it's enjoyable, but I don't like how anything it's like, whatever, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: interestingly, the first time that I saw this movie, which was a couple of years ago, I think around when you originally wrote this, this article review, um, I did not like it everyone was raving about it and i was like i think this is a bad movie um and then upon re-watching it uh with ren a few days ago i loved it
3: oh yes <laughs> <laughs> <I win> again. <laughs>
2: yeah i kind of yeah i definitely came around um what i think some of the
3: what do you I think, think the, the, hmm? what, do you th- what do you think the the like disconnect between those two viewings might have been.
2: Um, I'm sure. Tr- yeah. I'm trying to remember what I didn't like about it. Um, cause it seems so obvious what I do like about it now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ending bothered me the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's like it's it's like a little it kind of ends a little bit like a shaggy dog joke
3: (laughs) that's what i love about it yeah Uh, i i know what you mean though i like i i'll say again spoiler alert we're about to fucking spoil the the ending of this movie but um yeah i i i streamed this um for some friends over discord at um during covid and yeah, the last 15 minutes is Gowan seeing what would happen if he if he just ran away from this duty at the Green mm-hmm. Chapel and because he fucking cuts a guy's head off and he's got to get his head cut off in return. Um, but he's still wearing a magic belt. I don't know. There's a lot there's a lot of juicy bits to talk about in this. Anyway. You totally. get like 15-20 minutes of him becoming a king without honor not mm-hmm. living up to arthur's ideal of like this this metahuman um and just like fucking everything up descending sending the country into war uh denying his denying essel arguably the like person who loves him the most in the world unconditionally his mom is we should get into what's mm-hmm. up with morgan um, yeah yeah
2: could, could i jump off that please yes yeah um so there's this there's this really interesting thing to me about like um the this version of the story and this like retelling of the story where um uh you know in the in the the poem that this is inspired off of um we the story that we get it's it's very similar we have a very different Gawain though and mm-hmm. um like Gawain is Gawain in in like historical poems and stuff entails is like like the naive but like pure like good boy of Arthur who like struggles. Yeah he's boring so
1: boring. Yeah Dude, <laughs> don't
2: be a dumb bastard. <laughs> yeah who who you know struggles with honor but like that's what his story is about is struggling with honor. And like mm. um but in these original tellings um or you know sorry original is like a difficult word right now um but like in these other tellings of it like uh morgan or the old woman in the movie who like it famously watches um uh gawain get jerked off by his girlfriend not girlfriend um yeah yeah. um the old woman in the in the poem is morgan Lefay, who um who has like who has set up this entire thing, much like um, in the movie, Morgan Le also sets it up. Um, mm-hmm. But interestingly, in the two different tellings of this version, in like the historical poem, um, Gawain's mother is Morgase, which is Arthur's like um, like half sister. Um, and then Morgan is also Arthur's half sister. So, um, so
1: Gawain is her... Nephew, not her son.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Morgan in the poem doesn't like Gawain, and the whole thing is a ruse to um, show that Arthur and his court is doesn't have any honor. She wants to prove that they are shitty dudes. And, you know, she about half proves it because Gawain, like, only half sucks. Um, yeah, he.
3: In my, it's been it's been a minute. Um, am I throwing you off?
2: off oh, the, just off? just one more thing. One more thing. Yeah, um, so I just I think it, sorry. This is the whole point that I'm finally getting to. Um, so the the whole point of this difference, though, in like how the story is told in the poem, um, Morgan is setting up this challenge with the Green Knight to show that. Arthur and his court are a bunch of fools. And in the movie, Morgan Le Fay is Gawain's mother and is setting up the story to show that Arthur and his knights are a bunch of fools, but also to engineer a way for her son to prove how awesome he is. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's almost the opposite, but like still the same sort of a similarly similar intention.
3: Is that 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 makes sense? That's sort of what I think her her intent is. But on this on this last rewatch, it's it really hit me the way she like pulls the blindfold off of her off of her face after Gawain mm. beheads the Green Knight. I'm wondering if in this interpretation, it's Morgan Le Fay just sort of like summoning like. a magical nature spirit that she doesn't think Gowan will actually like, will be the one to try and like challenge it. Um, and that sort of like fucks up her whole deal. She's just like, oh man, I thought my cat, my coward of a son would never do something mm-hmm. like that. But he just got a pep talk from Arthur <laughs> fucked, fucked up my whole deal. Um, <laughs> like, I think your interpretation's like more right though. Like I think that the, Talking fox is uh, mm. is is her like avatar, and she's speaking mm-hmm. to him. Is just like, hey, don't like. I'll keep your <laughs> secret. You can lie. Don't go get killed by the green. Guy. He, he is as wild as me, yet knowing no measure. He will he will kill you. Like, and in this in the in the poem, it's been a while, um, but he like. He also is like always tri- like tripping over his own dick at, at every chance he gets, and like shows up, and the Green Knight is eventually just like, ah, you did you did okay enough, and he, here, keep the green belt that like keeps you invulnerable, just as a little reminder of how nice mm. I am. In a sort of like, <laughs> hey, we can be friends, paganism and Christianity, or something like that. And I love in this one, he he's just like, well done. You know you'd be mm, a terrible mm-hmm. You can't, and you know that you can't you can't go back to that because honor is, like, not, not something that's passed down through family lines, if it exists at all.
2: Yeah. Um, Ren, I know you did some research about this, um, but I'm wondering if you want to, like, talk about the, like, because this is kind of a piece of this is like the honor game or like the beheading game or like the game of oh, winnings yeah. that we see. Yeah,
1: totally. It's so funny to be thinking about this as like a kind of game at a time where, I don't know, I just want to say there's like so much incredible violence happening in the world. Um, yeah. But as part of this, I have, yeah, I was looking up this idea of the beheading game and the first um, beheading game story comes from the Ulster cycle of Irish mythology and it's a Cullen story. Cu Cullen being like one of the main heroes, virus mythology. Um, we
3: got and some the whole concept
1: the behind it is that like, I'm, I like read some stuff late at night while I was falling asleep and I'm not like remembering all the details, but the whole concept behind it is that. Researched. Yeah. Though that the magical being is not actually ever trying to, to behead the the hero in retribution. Um, it's just like a game of honor. And that, you know, sort of the ending of this film where, The green knight just gives, um, or doesn't even actually give Gawain a nick, just like does that thing with his hand where he says off with your head and the beheading game would have just been like a little nick on someone's neck. And that would then be like a sign that they had, you know, engaged in this. I don't know if it ever actually happened, especially because I don't think there were ever actually mythological beings that could pick up their heads and put them back on, but maybe I'm wrong. Um... But it was, yeah, it was the first known evidence of this or the first known, like, thing that has survived is in um, a Coo story from the Ulster Cycle.
2: Yeah. And then, like, similarly, there's, like, the the game of winnings is, like, the game that um, uh, Bertilac and uh, Gawain play. The, like, I'll give you what I find, if you give me what you find, is also, like, a really classic thing in like Mm -hmm. folklore and authorian legend i don't know
3: but uh yeah i forgot that that um that character in in the like um is that does that house have a name The and the game of win the game of winnings house we'll call it
1: the movie doesn't give anyone names. Yeah, like, not even like Arthur, Guinevere, or so. I think it's the Just the king. It and... does have a name. It does have a name, but I can't. Uh... In
2: the in the poem, it's um the the guy who lives there is Bertelac de uh, Hot Desert. I don't know how to pronounce this German castle
1: name. Hot Desert.
2: Yeah, hot castle desert. Hot Desert. Castle Hot Desert. Cool
3: Hot
1: Desert. Fucking cool. Hot Desert. Um, I don't know.
3: In the in the translation that that I read, um, that's the Green Knight in a different form, yeah. like as a hunter god. Like, is mm-hmm. that that in yours? He just takes oh, it.
2: that the sorry that the green the Green Knight or Bertilac. The Green Knight is Bertilac. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, I forget that, thing, that yeah. in the movie that we don't. There is not. It is not revealed that Bertilac is the Green Knight.
3: I forgot it until this this watch, <laughs> and, and I'm just like, wow, he's really obsessed with hunting, and like this this guy obviously trying to get this guy to fuck his wife. Um, like, who would do that? But a god of the hunt and a fertility god, of course.
2: <laughs> yeah, and this is this. Is, sorry, I feel like this track is all over the place, but um, uh, I was it's thinking about this interesting thing with um, so in the poem, and this maybe ties into a bigger. with some other stuff i'm a tangent brain sorry um but in the in the poem and in the movie we see the green knight come into arthur's court with a holly bow um Mm -hmm. and with the green knight being especially this like symbol in the poem of like uh of like celtic paganism um the uh during the, the solstice, this like notable thing happens, the winter solstice, where there's the battle of the Holly King and the Oak Knight. And the Holly <laughs> King is this like, you know, is this, 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 this deity who like um, rules from uh, it's like midsummer to um, the winter solstice. And then the Oak King like wins and be like rules over the seasons. And so it's like this interesting thing that like for the Green Knight to walk into Arthur's court, like during Yule, like after the solstice, like not dead and like confronting this new world is like this mm-hmm. was this weirdly interesting, like like historical mythological tie-in for like, That's... yeah. That's
3: so good. What a badass move. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Kept Especially uh-huh. when we like talk about the kind of like, um, uh, cause like, I don't think that um, I don't think the movie is like set in like a colorblind sort of way. I think it's really mm-hmm. purposeful. Like mm-hmm. the um, representation that they go for in the movie Um, especially as this, like, strange future corollary to, like, the British Empire and, like, their colonization of India. Like, I don't know. It feels really purposeful, and it's this, like, interesting, like, tie-in to, like, uh, of, like, this, like, critique of whiteness. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone else thought about this while watching the movie, but...
3: A bit. Yeah, I think that... um... Yeah, it was intentional that especially a movie that portrait like color itself is 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 holding up so much of the structure of this movie mm-hmm. um, to have it like have a brown lead in the sort of lily white court, especially when um, I thought it's really pronounced that in his vision at the end, he like Essel bears him a child and he just like dumps out some coins for, for his lowborn girlfriend and goes on to marry the most like lily white Celtic um, or like, like uh, Anglo woman you could possibly find. Um I feel like was like also quite intentional as him, like assimil- assimilating into like this structure that he, is like the whole movie is him just like trying to embody these values that he doesn't understand and doesn't really care to like try. He's just like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, I'll figure it out. Honor, you know, virtue. I've got, I've got those of course. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I had a, um, that reminded me of some, something that I wrote down um, when I was, Looking around at things. Uh, wait, did you have any more? Because the, ba- like, I love these little, these little snippets you both are, like, f- throwing out of, like, mm-hmm. especially, like, the bow of Holly thing I thought was just, like, pretty cool Is just, like, oh, that must have been, like, a ancient sort of uh, holiday gesture of, of like, fr- of friendship or something that he's, like, entering the court and, like, hol- holds mm-hmm. it up high over his head while everyone else is drawing swords. Um, yeah,
2: no, it's this weird historical. Th- I love to think about the context that people would view things in, and it's like mm-hmm. for for this for like in uh, at uh, that time like audience to like like who's probably familiar with the um, the story of like the Holly King and the Oak King. Like people, I imagine people would have been viewing this as like the solstice is over. What is the Holly King doing back here? <laughs> This is a li- bad I lived
0: bitch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I was also really interested, and I think like in addition to everything that y'all are saying, um, this movie is also really about a sort of assimilation into a patriarchal kind of Christianity that mm-hmm. you know we have um the Green Knight as this representation of of sort of these other religious beliefs. We have um the two, Morgan Le Fay and Gawain, as these brown characters. We have um, Essel, Essel's the name of, the, yeah. of his girlfriend, right? You know Essel who is portrayed as a sex worker with the bells and the short hair, um, and all of these other other characters kind of fall outside of the purview of, of what is considered acceptable within this Eurocentric, patriarchal Christianity. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is how the, that was done with the costumes. I got super yeah. into looking up stuff about the costumes. The costume designer, I am going to pronounce her name terribly. It's a, She's a Polish designer, but I believe it's Malgosia Trzanska. Um, and there's a bunch of interviews with her in different places because, like, obviously, the costumes for this movie were amazing. Um, and she talks a lot about. One thing um, that she talks a lot about that I think relates to this sort of like patriarchal Christianity thing is the way that she designed the costumes for Arthur and Guinevere, who I think in the movie are just the king and queen. They, they aren't given those names. Yeah. Um, and so part of it is these, these metal crowns that are taken from early Christian and like early Byzantine kind of representations of saints, but then, crowns, yeah. totally. Awesome. Yeah. But then also they're like totally covered with metals and the queen in particular is covered with milagros, which are sort of these little symbols that they're like X photos. They're symbols that um, would have been used within Spanish Christianity, also like other parts of the Mediterranean as well. Um, and then are now commonly seen in association with Latin America because of colonization. And to me, And also the costume of the princess he marries at the end also had these like Spanish, like it just felt like Spanish, early modern, like late 1400s kind of vibe, which made me think about, right, that's this time when Isabel and Ferdinand take the throne, right? Um, Jews and Muslims get kicked out of Spain, the Inquisition starts, America starts getting colonized. It's this like really intense moment of Christianity as this like imperial force and this like horrible destructive force. And so I kept thinking about that while watching that, even though this movie is set in like medieval England inspired by like both the 1300s and like the 500s or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like they were bringing in this commentary on like specifically like um, the relationship between Christianity and colonialism in early modern Spain. Um, which makes sense because it's such a pronounced example of that, but also doesn't make sense because it's just, it doesn't seem to like relate as much to the movie. Um, And then the other thing I thought was interesting about the costumes is she talks a lot about how in um, like things that have lasted for thousands of years, what's usually left is the metal that was part of the costumes, like the metal threads and stuff, or like, The decals or the jewelry, and so she leaned into a lot of metals, which is interesting because so much of this movie to me is about how how things decay and nothing lasts, and nature overtakes everything, and like any attempt to like find immortality for yourself is gonna fall apart. And so it was interesting to me that part of how that was evoked was through the costumes in the court being like really heavy metal, like stuff that like they believed would last forever or that did last longer than other materials.
3: That's such, that's such a good insight. Ren, you're the best in the biz.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like
3: the, yeah. The costuming in this is uh, sorry. I mean, were you going to, where you on?
2: Oh, I just had Go one there. little, one little nerd thing, which was there. There's some, like, I, I don't know what period they were going for. There's like some anachronisms and like, how, I think it was an
1: intentional, yeah, yeah it was an intentional yeah. mishmash, yeah. Totally. Like
2: no,
3: like no one in Arthur's time was living in castles for real.
2: Yeah, or yeah, or just like like funny funny things, but um uh like lack of tunics over chainmail or like whatever, you know. I, I don't really care. Armor looks cool. Um but uh one thing that I was really stoked to see, it's like um Gawain's like uh kingly outfit um mm-hmm. he and I never fucking see this in in movies. He's wearing riveted chainmail, which I've never seen riveted which riveted chainmail for nerds or whatever, not nerds is like um how chainmail would have been historically made and was historically made and like what we see in most movies is is, is like literally just costuming and is like incredibly inaccurate cuz people wouldn't have used it cuz it wasn't strong. So Hell yeah! Riveted chainmail in in that scene.
3: Riveted chainmail finally getting its due. Mm-hmm. Um, the I wanted to talk a little bit more about like this movie as an allegory, or of like someone like to to obtain honor. He has a chance to kind of work with nature, find an appreciation for a world outside of like the the growing imperial center that he is like like one of the top dogs in mm-hmm. um, and yeah just like paganism versus Christianity thing where like because in the original telling it's not like the Green Chapel is not really a chapel it's like a big chasm that's like mossy and green and it's in the side of a mountain and it's like not man's but it's of the other world and mm-hmm. What does he say it like he says uh says the place belongs to Satan for certain this is a soulless spot a ghostly cathedral overgrown with grass the kind of Kirk where the camouflaged man might deal in devilment and all things dark my five senses inform me that Satan himself has tricked me into this tryst intending to destroy me this is a haunted house may it go to hell and I never cross a come across a church so cursed um, and then, like the green knight starts like grinding his axe in the dark, which is like real good storytelling.
2: Um, um, do you know what the original color for the devil was in Europe? Green, green,
3: green. That's right. It was green. <laughs> yeah. Wonder. Wonder why? What were they yeah. so afraid of?
2: Yeah, green was the color of nature and evil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I feel like really sits in with this like like um, tension between like drab patriarchal Christianity and paganism.
3: Yeah. Like, um, and, and he's just uh, in the movie, he's like, it's like, yeah, it's the cover of nature. And it's like, oh, it's the cover of rot as well. And, um, the yeah. like, false Essel is like, yeah, yeah, of course. That's like the cyclical nature of life. Moss will cover your tombstone. And mm-hmm. as the, green shall spread over all and all its uh, shades and hues. I got a, I got a review from a website called the imaginative conservative, a Christian website. Um, and I think they are, uh, on the $20 tier of the strangers. Patreon. Thanks a lot. Imaginative <laughs> conservative. Um, they wrote and they actually seemed to really dig the movie, but they framed it as like, I think the title is like a failure for Christianity and a, and a triumph for paganism. Um, at the Senate, at the center of the story of Gawain and the Green Knight are the themes of time cyclical nature through the four seasons of life and death, the power of and terror of nature and the question of paganism in relation to Christianity the movie addresses these themes with great care, taking extra time in one scene to describe the earthly nature of the green night and asserting that ultimately the green of nature is not a sign of life, but of decay, fungus, mold, and decomposition ever at war <laughs> with, with the red of blood and the lust of men. i they might've missed some other lines in that. Uh, this is where the film shows its atheistic pagan tendencies most. It shuns the Christian answer of the original story in favor of its own. While the poem so joyfully concludes with the Christmas miracle of penance and compassion, implying that Christianity is the force that breaks the pagan cycle of life and death by promising everlasting life, the film gleefully concludes that since there is nothing after death, one ought die sooner rather than later, facing his death with his head held high. Is that it? Is this all there is? Gowan asks at the end of the film, what else ought there be? The Green Knight replies, which is a fucking killer line. Fuck these guys. This is the best the pagan atheistic world can offer. Nothing. Um, so that's the that Christian take. That is like
1: complete, the complete opposite of how I took that line. Yeah, that's exactly
3: the opposite <laughs> of like how I, that's like my favorite line in the in, yeah. in the whole movie and maybe all movies. Like it fucking rips and and they're like, yeah, it means it means there's nothing rather than this like spoiled fail son encountering literal giants, a like dryad like talking foxes the majesty of nature and he's just and like because he doesn't feel anything, he's just like, is this all there is? more isn't there more for me, Gowan? famed party boy?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. I don't know, you know, up up until then, though, there's part I, there's, you know, that thing when like, um, like evangelicals or like, whatever, like, uh, like critique something and you have this moment of being like, you're like, almost correct. But you hate that where I'm like, yeah, you're like, you've almost got it. <laughs> and I agree with you. Yeah, you're
3: all you yeah. like, I guess you're. Mm, there's two things I disagree with, but like yeah I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. D- yeah, but I think this is awesome.
2: <laughs> yes, that 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 part is important. They hate it. I love it. Mm.
1: I mean, for me, it really was going back to this idea of like the court trying to build the society that was gonna like last forever and remain, and the Green Knight being in this chapel that's totally like because in the movie it's a it's a it's the ruins of a church, mm-hmm. you know, that's overgrown. And just, like, this is all there is. Like, all there is is, like, the life that we are living here right now and how we treat people here right now, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's cheesy, but I guess that's, like, what I got from it was that, like, this is what you get, right? You get to exist in the world and do the best you can. And that, you know, that, yeah. like, endless quest for immortality is, like, a waste of fucking time and doesn't help anyone. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. like, I feel like
2: that gets really hammered down with, like – um like the society that we see in like Arthur's court is like, Mm -hmm. it's fucking dismal besides the uh, inclusion of the Judy and punch show, which I fucking love. I love that they included like a Judy and punch show. Which is
1: like vernacular. It's like theater of everyday, (laughs) like the everyday peasants or whatever that are living in the town, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Loved that. But other
2: than that, it's this like drab and dismal society that like, doesn't really seem to inspire joy at all. And like, Wayne's mother like engineers this like quest for him to go on in the society that magic has like literally walked away from mm-hmm. and See, is she like
3: completely subdue the magical world
2: yeah and she's like don't waste this like go be on this adventure it is an adventure and on adventures you have to like fight dragons and talk to giants and shit and like I don't know it's like he, yeah that's all there is is like going on weird adventures and building real relationships with people.
3: I love that when um when he gets attacked by Barry Keegan and his his like little urchins, he's he's just like, I thought you said like where's the Green Chapel? And he's like, you're in it. It's just the we're in the forest, my man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's like, and then you just said something that reminded me of like, he, yeah, is given this chance. Don't waste this, this big, incredible world where like, he's never seen giants before, probably thought they were fake. And then he sees giants and is le- and he's like, might a weary traveler travel on, on your back? And they're like, sure. And then he's just scared of it. He just refuses to work with nature, work with. <laughs> The world, the world out out there, and then he just has to hoof it all the way.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. He encounters some wacky stuff. This is this is just a segue because I really want to talk about this. But um, um, the chapter with uh, Saint Winifred, the like mm-hmm. weird ghost that he finds um in the in the house, is like you know they they basically take you through the story, but like Saint Winifred is like this like a woman who got beheaded because she like rebuked the the advances of a suitor and like then her dad or uncle or something just like walks up and like plops her head back on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, there's this like, I'm sorry, Ren. Wait, sorry. I forgot. I forgot how the story actually goes. (laughs)
1: I don't know, she becomes like a, she becomes like the in charge of an abbey or something.
3: Patron saint of unwanted advances.
1: Yeah, but that's like every, like, I don't know how familiar you are with like the histories of of female saints. But that's like half of them. It's Mm. like them getting murdered in horrible ways, typically because they like didn't want to marry someone. Um Mm. So, yeah, that's totally true, but also it's, like, such a common story. Um, But the beheading thing is really interesting, right, because there's this through line. And one thing I kept thinking about with it is, like, the differences between their situations, right? Gawain is engaged in this game and, Mm -hmm. you know, is this knight, like, off in this adventure, whereas for Winifred, it's, like, she was this victim of, like, this real horrible violence, Um, and yeah, I felt like, like, I was curious why they included that. It's like a throwaway line in the original poem. It's like, he went through Holywell or something, which is the name of the town that St. Winifred's Well is in, in Wales. Um, so I was wondering like why they spun it into a whole episode, but I thought that those parallels and juxtapositions were interesting. Just like the stakes felt really different between Mm -hmm. the two situations,
3: it was a cool little like ghost story vignette. Um, Mm -hmm. And I especially like, I mean, I like, I like it on its own, but I think like the way that it serves the story um, best is when she asks, like, I need help. I need you to get Mm -hmm. my skull out of the lake. And he says, if I do this, what will you give me? And she just responds with, why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? Mm-hmm. Are you not a knight? <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Um, just just keep showing like he had a chance to do something and, and he's just like, what's in it for me, babe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because he's also part of this world, right? Mm. And so, yeah. I mean, I also think there's a tie in, right? If we're thinking about sort of pre-Christianity and in, in, um, in Celtic lands. You know, holy wells have become Christianized, but a lot of them were like pre-Christian places of where people would put votive offerings, would put like special objects. Um, And sometimes I've read would actually like even put skulls in um, because they were considered sacred within Celtic religion. So, yeah, there are like, I wonder if it was also to bring out those themes, although they aren't really made very explicit within the film. Like if you don't already know, you're not going to know. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, Ren, maybe, you know, the answer to this, um, were there, are, are saints totally particular to Catholicism or do saints appear in like Protestantism?
1: There are Anglican saints and I think there are Lutheran saints. So there, there are some strains of Protestant Protestantism where there are saints, but oh, okay. at the time that the poem was written, uh, England would have been Catholic still.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yep.
3: Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Morgan Le Fay. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Specifically, what, what's, what's her deal? <laughs> like, I guess we already got into, like, what could her intentions be there? But, like, as a wider, and, like, maybe we can just talk about, like, fantasy in general and, like, retellings of it. Like,
2: mm-hmm.
3: like have either of you read The Miss of Avalon? Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Or, like... What do you what do you take on like this this take of Morgan Lefay?
2: I I loved it. I feel like it's really like um, I feel like it's really in line with like stories of Morgan Lefay that I've that I've read, you know, or heard, or like, mm-hmm. um, and like in that like Morgan Lefay is an antagonistic character that's like trying to like usually trying to fuck with Arthur and like be like like prove that. Arthur is kind of like a king of fools Um, and like I find that really interesting and it's like especially in like the depiction within like the Mists of Avalon there's like um, like seeing this version of Morgan Le Fay who's like hoodwinked Merlin because Merlin at the end of Mists of Avalon is just kind of like a laughable joke Um, and I found that really amusing that like Morgan Le Fay is like like no fuck you Merlin you betrayed your people like I've hoodwinked you like you can't see shit and um, I really I really enjoyed that about about this depiction
3: Merlin was getting too cocky had to be taken down a peg for sure Mm, yeah I think I think I did already say it but I love that they gave Merlin face tattoos as like a a magic guy and this one just cool face rune tattoos anyway
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah um yeah, I was really obsessed with the Arthurian legends when I was a kid. And I was particularly obsessed with Morgan Le Fay. Um, it's so disappointing that Marion Zimmer Bradley, who wrote The Miss of Avalon*, ended up being an awful person because that was no. my favorite. She's yeah. awful. Yeah. Real um, bad person. And uh, because that was my favorite book when I was like 12 or something. I remember like secretly reading it and hiding the cover so my parents wouldn't like actually look at what I was reading. Cause it's, you know, kind of a saucy book, but, um, I like haven't thought about any of this in like 22 years. <laughs> so it was like a lot of revisiting of that for me. And so, yeah, like trying to dig more into like representations of Morgan Le Fay. I feel like there were a bunch of movies in the nineties that came out where she's sort of like an, a major character or hero. Um, like cheesy made for TV movies and stuff. Oh
0: yeah.
1: Um, I which like I think is like such a yeah, it's like that era, you Xena
3: know. And like the Hercules show. Like, yeah, this like whole like
1: girl power thing. Yeah. And I would be interested to go back and revisit those movies from that nineties lens, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like sort of um I've yeah, I feel like I don't have as many thoughts on Morgan Le Fay as I would have had on her when I was twelve. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so <laughs> Do you, have you, uh, having not thought about it for a while and like it kind of like cracking back open, do you, do you find you have any insights like 22 years removed from it that like you didn't have before that you want to get into at all?
1: You know, I really don't think I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this, you know, this character of the dangerous magical woman is is such a stock character in folklore in Europe and also all, you know, in other parts of the world as well. And she really occupies this position. Um, And I think it's like a powerful character and yeah, it would be interesting to read perceptions of Morgan Le Fay in relationship to like, um, the rise of witch hunting in Europe or something, right? Like what, Mm. how does she shift depending on how like cultural views are shifting towards women or towards practitioners of like folk practices. Um, But I don't actually know. Like if anyone listening knows, like has written or has read something like that, I'd love to see it. But um, yeah, I guess that's kind of just what I like, what pops into my head.
3: I was really, really fond of this one that they like, kept as almost frustratingly morally ambiguous about her intentions though. Like when it is like kind of shown on, on screen, like um, Gawain is, is just like an asshole of a King um, Lee and, you know, takes the baby, leaves Essel crawling on the floor. Like it's Morgan Le Fay and her um, attendants, daughters, uh, sisters. I'm not sure her, her, Witches' coven uh, who are there like taking care of the, of this like woman who just had like the most horrific thing happen to her while her son who is like seems to have like in her body language in that flash, in that like vision of the future I read really just like disgust with her son which like really gets me thinking about what her intent was if it really was if she re- intended it for it to be Gowan at all um, but totally, yeah,
1: I was reading, so- I read so many like random articles on the internet and I can't remember which one it was, but I was reading something that described, um, uh, Morgan Le Fay as, um, in, in this film as being portrayed almost as a Lady Macbeth, which I thought was interesting. Cause I, yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: I kind of got that with, with Inman's interpretation of, of her trying to like engineer her son's future.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can yeah. see I can totally see that.
2: Yeah, um, <laughs> that's funny. My my other weird tie-in to Macbeth is like weirdly similar to like this story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, of like because we we have this the depiction of like the weird sisters or like the witches in Macbeth as like this antagonistic force. Um, mm-hmm. And the the play was commissioned for King James, who was like an avid witch hunter, because um, mm-hmm. he he wanted his family to have a historical tie to mythology, and his ancestor oh. is Fleance, the child mm-hmm. that survives the whole ordeal, but isn't involved in the plot at all. Um, and the depiction is that of like um, in some. Like lit crit things, we see the witches as like, um, like antagonistic. And in some, we see them portrayed as merely like conveying what is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: intermediaries between other worlds. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I always liked the, um, the interpretation of the witches as like being antagonistic, not, not, not to like reinforce that like witches are evil or anything, but that they, were involved in sort of like engineering or like seeing the fate of like this like really shitty King who's like, like, nah, you're bad. We're going to get rid of you. And um we're going to make you think that you did it. Like some people interpret Macbeth like as going mad and some people interpret it as like, and like dealing with like uh mental instability and stuff. And like, um and some people would interpret it as like the witches are, like fucking with him and
3: I like that one.
2: <laughs> it's like it's a weirdly similar, like, you know, I mean it's a trope. It's a trope um that we see in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and in Macbeth and in similar stories. But since I like witches and I hate Macbeth, and since I like witches and I think Arthur was kind of a dweeb, I'm like, this is kind of cool. I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's very cool. Like <laughs> She literally has a a crooked tower in this movie to go to go do magic in. Like, I think I think she got she got her due in a way that I've never I've never really seen before. We won't we I didn't know that about the author of *Miss of Avalon*, so we shan't be mentioning it again.
2: Um, yeah, and just like trig you know, kind of hard trigger warning if you're like listening to this and not like going to look up what like what's up with Marion Zimmer Bradley? It's, it's, it's really fucked up. Like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. for sure. Um,
3: I'll just take your word for it.
1: One thing about, and I'm putting this in our little recording chat, but one thing about the depiction is it kind of reminded me of this, this like pre-Raphaelite painting of Morgan Le Fay. Whoa! Um, look at her. Something about the depiction. Like I, when I, I would almost guess that the costume designer took inspiration from this. Um, And I don't know, it's not like a one-to-one, but it just feels like there are echoes. It's Frederick Sandys, Morgan Le Fay is the painting. But this makes me think about another thing that I would love to talk about, which is that there was this big um, repopularizing of Arthurian legends in the 1800s. And it was was sort of tied to like romanticism and also like the rise of British imperialism and all of these complicated, mostly not good things. Um, And the way that like the Arthurian legends have been reinvented for all of these different eras and changed depending on who's telling it and, you know, what values are being celebrated, which makes me wonder like how this film functions as an Arthurian story for our era and what it's trying to say. And like, yeah, I don't know.
3: Mm-hmm. And the way that we see, like, I mean, we're in an era where a lot of, uh, a lot of nationalistic or ethno nationalistic myths mm-hmm. are, are being used to, uh, yeah, to great or diminishing effect out there. And, like, I definitely feel like, like, the myth, um, the specter of Arthurian legend, like, hangs over, like, all of fantasy. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's near impossible to, to avoid it, especially if you're dealing with, like, sword and sorcery, anything. And especially, like, yeah, it played, um, Ren, you might you might have more insight i'd like to hear uh, sometime about how big of a role it played in like the foundation of like england when it became like a big colonizing force of, to have this like myth of you know a chosen by god leader that like they're too civilized to really believe in but they want to like get out there and like retell it over and over and over mm. again anyway um,
1: I don't know much more about it than that. I do know that people who are pretty smart have written more about it. So,
3: yeah, I'd like to, yeah. I'd like to look that up a little bit more because I, fucking, I, I mean, it would be cool if it didn't, if it didn't cast a shadow over everything. But I am not, not too deep into Arthurian legend anymore, in, unless there's a, unless Swamp Thing is there to like <laughs> kick one of their asses. Which is why I like this one so much, um, because the Green Knight is kind of like Swamp
2: Thing. <laughs> yeah,
3: anything that's a little like Swamp Thing, I'm just like, yeah, there he is, my boy. <laughs> I just, I just like, I like it when there's a when there's a an avatar of nature there who's who's like aggressive. Yeah. I like it when he's when he's when he's when he's a chiller, like. I feel like in myth the the Green Knight coming from like the you know like the the Green Man or like what whatever you want to call it was like depending on the season like like a god a god to be like to be welcomed but in winter was more of like a mischievous little scamp um, to knock on like I forget. In Celtic myth there was a they had a specific name for him where he would knock on doors and just be like come on it's an adventure come on there's prizes let's go <laughs> and i love that and i feel like that had had a bit of a shadow on on how this story came to be in the first place a mischievous little scamp cut my head off nothing will happen or will it <laughs> um Anything, anything else y'all feel like touching on just like about the Green Knight, uh Arthur, or just fantasy in general?
2: Um, I just wanted to add in like as like a, for like why this is like, why this is a tale that's important for like our times now is like, um, and <laughs> we should talk about this movie sometime, but one of my favorite movies is this, um, this uh, Canadian horror movie about LARPing called the wild hunt. Um, And yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's weird. Um, But they like, it's, it's this idea that like, like we, we're in like such a time right now that like, like, hiding behind like um, hiding behind like this idea that we can just kind of like skate through things or like not come into conflict Mm -hmm. with like really fucked up things out in the world is like, like it's, it's just a bad look right now. You know, like it's like, I feel like we're in this time where it's a time for like, it's a time for being on the adventure. It's a time for like coming to odds with like things that, are harmful and weird or bad or like these like constructs in society or like with, you know, any crazy fucking global political like war that's going on right now. And like, I don't know. I think it's just, I think it, I think this movie kind of like hammers down that it's like, it's a time for acting. It's a time for being who we want to be and not just like skating along. Yeah.
1: Don't
3: don't skate skate along. Embod embody a value if if you value it. Don't just like expect to get it through sleepwalking on a on a little quest you you or someone else gives you.
2: Yeah, and like just don't like sleepily sit back and like reinforce, reproduce, or like not confront genocide. Like,
1: yeah, <sighs> yeah. totally.
3: You have, you have so, so many choices you can be ma- making totally. right now. And I'm not, a uh, not, I'm not about, I don't usually like to be a nag, but if you're not, if you're not doing anything, what the fuck are you even doing? Totally. Like, and that's
2: what,
1: yeah. There is another part of the movie we didn't talk about that I really want to, and part of it is just because I'm a Barry Keegan fanboy, but yeah. part of it is because that section is so interesting to me is the section where he comes across um, Barry Keegan picking through the remnants of a battle. Mm-hmm. Um and then all, you know, gets led to the quote unquote Green Chapel. And um yeah, it's like this moment where he, I don't know if I, I don't know if I think I have a lot to say about it. It just really interested me. I looked, I read something that was saying that that battle was supposed to represent this battle where King Arthur killed like hundreds and hundreds of Anglo Saxons. Yeah, the Battle of Baden. Uh, Baden.
3: The Battle of Baden is how battle I battle of Baden. Okay, the, fam- the famed one where he killed like seven hundred and sixty Saxons with Excalibur.
1: Yeah. So that's supposed to be a representation of that. And this interesting thing where Gawain is going out, you know, this is the first thing he comes across on his adventure and he's going out into the world and taking with him all these myths and legends of the round table. And the first thing he encounters is like a pretty like impoverished, um, disenfranchised commoner who is like going, you know, is like making his living by taking objects from the dead on this battlefield where this devastation has been caused by Arthur and his knights, um, mm-hmm. and this juxtaposition between the myths that we tell and then the reality—that's like what's happening in the world—and
3: the mm-hmm. the scene directly before that is them like fat like clear cutting a forest, and then he gets oh, to oh
1: I didn't catch that yeah
3: yeah there's like a tree falling and he's and he gets to this battlefield just dead bodies everywhere and Gaw and Gawain's just sort of like. totally like unfazed he's just like oh all these all these dead guys eh and and Barry and Barry's playing like a a weird little freak like he's great at doing of
1: course yeah but
3: like there's genuine like he get he makes a meal out of that role of like nasty little urchin but talking about just like my brother my brothers were here and you know I would have been here I would have in here like he gets like he t- chokes up and then he just keeps going because he's like yeah. cr- he's cr- crazy he's got nothing left he's yeah. looting corpses um,
1: because this is his reality right this is not <clears throat> he's not he's not coming from the castle
3: yeah he's me- mentally j- just like fucked by being being on the outside of like this this growing empire um,
1: um, and yeah and then this scene where he gets, where Gawain gets, um, what? Thieved? Wait, what word am I looking for? Robbed. robbed? He gets robbed by by Barry and his cohorts in in the woods. And there's that weird scene where Dev Patel's character like turns into a skeleton and then turns back into a human. Which has led me to propose that possibly there's a conspiracy theory where he's dead for the rest of the movie and it's like his ghost adventures.
3: His like DMT trip before he dies. <laughs> like, this yeah. is what would happen if I made it to the chapel.
1: Yeah. He's St. Winifred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it actually holds up, but I, that scene yeah. like really stuck with me.
3: <laughs> I took that as like a, cause this is the first, like immediately he like rides out and then just like life slaps him in the face. And he's just like, might yeah. as well lay down and die. This is too hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
3: Lost my horse, lost, lost my cool ax. What's even the point?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
3: lost my belt.
2: But it it's also this moment where he like, like, like I like I don't know. I was impressed that he kept going. You know mm-hmm. that he he lost all of his shit and he wasn't like, well, I guess I'm going home now.
3: He does have mm-hmm. a like like I I I take it out pretty pretty hard hard on him, but he does have his own the nobility of a of a or like the honor of a of a child the like someone who has never been had to be challenged rising to to a challenge by because he has to because he is forced to and I think the entire story revolves around like if Arthur didn't show up and say and say like the game's not finished you got to get out there like he would have never had a chance to be challenged in the slightest
2: yeah yeah and I don't know I guess I also want to highlight this thing where, like, you know, like uh, Gawain, like, when he meets um, Barry, Barry's character, who doesn't have a name, I don't think. Um, I think it's like, the
1: scavenger.
2: The scavenger. Yeah, when, when he meets the scavenger, like, I kind of enjoy how he does not, like, he does not consider himself to be in danger for a while. And like I think it points to this kind of like interesting thing where it's like it's it's this disenfranchised person like talking to someone else who is disenfranchised and who like is like, oh, I don't have anything to I, I'm not gonna be harmed by these people because like we share some commonality and then like and then is very wrong about that. And I don't know. It was it was it was a weirdly interesting moment to me about like the way that societies kind of like set up like different um different uh like branches of like disenfranchised people to be like at odds with each other
3: many many interests and not enough resources to go around it wasn't enough
2: yeah (laughs) i feel like that's all i really got to say about this movie but
3: yeah i feel like I feel like I could keep going on this movie, but we're already we're already running long. Um, totally. Uh, this movie rips. It's cool, uh, even if you're not deep into fantasy, it's be- it's beautifully shot.
1: Um, I'm not. I'm not deep into fantasy at all, and so I can I can um, back you up on that.
3: Excellent. Yeah. Wow, you're 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 so knowledgeable about just like. Uh, about his, the historical context that fantasy is al- already ripping off. Yep. I'm just that- like
1: a big old history nerd, so yeah.
3: <laughs> do you think that has a, s- stuff to do with you? Just like ah, fantasy, not my thing. I want the I want the real the real straight straight dope.
1: I think I've just always been interested in the history behind things, like I, yeah. or the folk, not like like the folklore behind things, but in a historical way. Like even as a kid, I was more interested in. I mean, this is totally, like, it. people are pretty sure that King Arthur never existed. But as a child, I was, like, super interested in, like, archaeological digs about whether or not King Arthur existed, you know, or, like, the sort of, like, actual histories of religion in the British Isles. Or, you know, like, I was always more drawn to that stuff than to the fantasy stuff. And I have a lot of admiration for fantasy. I think it does – it can – I mean, it can put out all sorts of narratives, right, but it can – put out really liberatory narratives. It's just not like what catches my attention.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think like reimaginings or not even reimaginings, just like examining them through like a modern lens of like, this was written at a time when like they were actively like St. Patrick was in Ireland trying to crush paganism. And like, we get these like Irish myths like that are retellings of older myths and like, you can see the changes that are made. Mm-hmm. Like it's so it's very telling in a way that you can't, you sort of get, get more of an insight into the mentality in a way that, um, that more like sort of nu- numbers and facts based history. Can't really get, get more vibes. I'm a vibes mm-hmm. guy. Totally. Um, well, well, that's my that's my favorite Christmas movie. What are you, what's what's everyone else's favorite Christmas movie? <laughs> Got one? <laughs> no, it's a bad it's a bad holiday.
1: I'm not really a Christmas person, so I'm having a lot of trouble even thinking of a Christmas movie.
2: Yeah, I had a really weird one that I thought of recently, but I can't remember it. Um, but sorry, as per my introduction, um, I do really want to. For some reason, this feels true. That, um, so Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, our publisher, we did put out this book. We put out Margaret Kiljoy's uh, book, Escape from Incel Island. And there's something about it. I don't know what it is that feels like a Christmas story. And, oh, <laughs> you're <were> serious. <laughs> well, yeah, I can't argue with you.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, avail- available on strangers in a dot uh what's the
2: website <laughs> inman uh oh. TangledWilderness.org. um right. and this <laughs> Mar- margaret has never said this i don't think this is purely me and jonas Goonface's uh like weird sick idea that this is a christmas story <laughs>
3: oh I was talking with Jonas about this a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Sit, stick around. If you like escape from Insell Island, you are going to love escape from Insell Island. The game coming next year that Jonas is busy dr- making some doodles for. Um, well, uh, anything, anything else y'all have been like reading, writing, listening to um, not writing, watching. I mean, tell me, tell me about your short stories. Yeah, Inman, you still working on that screenplay for? You're trying to
2: you're
3: trying to trying to pitch to the West Wing guy.
2: <laughs> what? <laughs> Don't listen to me. Uh, anybody um, been watching any
3: show, any shows, any movies, or anything you want to recommend to the mm-hmm. good people listening at home?
2: Um, I want to recommend the wild hunt. It's a Canadian horror movie about LARPing and um, we should do an episode about it. That is,
1: that is what I want to recommend.
2: All right. All I feel Canadian. like I'm
1: in, I feel like I'm in this weird point cause I'm in the middle of finals for library school. And so my brain feels like it has very little room for um, like, I even have trouble remembering what I most recently watched or read. Um, yeah. It
3: doesn't have to be recent. If you got any like this, I want people to see this.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I always recommend that if you're into like spooky folklore stuff, Angela Carter's the bloody chamber, I would say there are moments in it that are a little dated, but overall it's a pretty amazing collection of short stories. Um, yeah. If you want, if you want that, like that crossover between like fantasy and fairy tales and horror.
3: Sick yeah that sounds like my shit um i just started scavengers rain um it's an animated thing on hbo um it's really great it's excellent sci-fi um and an excellent use of animators where i feel like animators have not the last the last time i remember um, feeling like animators are having fun and like able to like express a vision without executives, like leaving so much on the chopping block was Adventure Time. This is far different than Adventure Time, but it's just as like imaginative and inventive. Um, I'm not even that deep into it yet, but I, I recommend it. Um, it's pretty, it's kind of brutal. So, but like, that's eh, not too brutal. You'll be fine.
1: Oh, also, I do have one I forgot.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, listen to the Pogues. Listen
3: to the Pogues.
1: <laughs> um, I've been listening to a lot of the Pogues because, of course, Shane McGowan just died. Rest in um, yeah. And the f- tie into The Green Knight is that I was like driving around listening to the Pogues, and I was like, they have to make a biopic about Shane McGowan starring Barry Keegan. And then I typed oh. in Shane McGowan Barry Keegan, and I found all these articles. I think it's held up in production, but he's already been cast in a biopic.
3: Oh my god! Oh my god. You fucking laid of <laughs> heaven, Barry, into a role, into a role.
1: <laughs> um. And it was like from 2019, you know how movies get like held up forever. And, yeah. You know.
3: And like but, COVID destroyed a lot of yeah, it. Yeah. Uh,
1: but but I hope it happens someday because I can think of no one who would do a better job playing Shane McGowan.
3: No. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's no other choice for a weird little freak like that guy. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been listening to Rum Sod- Sodomy and the Lash all, all day uh, while I was like reading stuff, uh, prepping for this. Pogues Rip. rip listen
2: to the yeah voice. yeah um <laughs> this is a weird thing to go out on can i can we go out on i really a want song. to read the 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 green monologue from
1: yeah yes Do we literally all have it pulled up
3: yes probably okay <laughs> All right. Same same time. No, you do
1: it. You should do it in Let's go out on this.
3: Uh, Yeah. Do you want to, uh, we'll do just like uh, any, do you want to plug anything before we go and we can like, just leave that as the, as as the real end. Um, I'm on the internet. You can find me.
2: Uh, You can find me hosting the strangers in a tangled wilderness podcast and live like the world is dying. And um and uh, soon-to-be Penumbra City in your mailboxes. Cool.
1: Uh, I'm on at Renarai on Instagram. Hilariously, this is the second Strangers podcast I'm on for the month of December. I'm also on the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast this month, so you can check that out. Uh, I edited a book called Nourishing Resistance that has lots of contributions from really cool, smart people um, from PM Press. I think that's it.
2: Listen to the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness episode. It's so good. Me and Ren just talk about saints and like weird history and shit. This is, I'm so unarticulate right now, but it's great. You sold me on it.
3: I've already listened, but you sold me again. Um, <laughs> All right. Take us home, Min
2: Yeah. Well, um, first, uh, before I read this, um, we would just like to thank Oh, um, thank you. I was, I was just realizing uh, I'm
3: going to have to do this after your thing. No, please. Thank you yeah. for doing my job. Yeah, so. yeah.
2: Um, we would just like to thank of, of, a bunch of our Patreon, um, uh, su- su- supporters, subscribers, patrons, um, failing your to heroes. say words as I pull up this, this list. Um, but thank you so much, Patoli, Eric, Percival, Buck, Julia, Catgut, Marm, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Janison, Odell, Alley, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, S.J., Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Staro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the dog.
3: Here, here, <laughs> bet I shall defend you all with sword and shields.
2: <laughs> and just to end. But green is the color of living things, of life. We deck our halls with it and dye our linen. But should it come creeping up the cobbles, we scrub it out fast as we can. When it blooms beneath our skin, we bleed it out. And when we, together, all find that our reach has exceeded our grasp, we cut it down. We stamp it out. We spread ourselves atop it and smother it beneath our bellies. But it comes back. It does not dally. It does not wait to plot or conspire. Pull it out by the roots one day and the next, it's there, creeping in around the edges. Whilst we're off looking for red, here comes green. Red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind. In heart, in womb, green is what is left when ardor fades, when passions die. And when we die too, when you go, your footsteps will fill with grass and moss shall cover your tombstone. And as the sun rises, green shall spread over all in its shades and hues. The verdigris will overtake your swords, your coins and your battlements and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue, green is the color of rot.